Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Last week, we discussed very briefly at a high level what Advent is. What Advent is. And the word Advent means arrival. It means coming. How many of you, just as a show of hands, you grew up in a church that celebrated the Advent season? Or you did things like the, the wreath, or you saw poinsettias, or you, you did things of that nature around Advent? Yeah, yeah, some of you, some of you are like, I didn't. It was non-denominational, and we just, you know, we rocked it out during the Christmas season, okay? Uh, that's fine, too. But <laughs> Advent is the beginning of the Christian New Year, all right? It's the beginning of the Christian New Year. So for us, as the people of God across the world, New Year is, for us, does not begin January 1. It actually began last week. Advent represents a season of newness, but it is a a season that is focused on the arrival of Christ in a couple of different ways, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But it does kick off for us the cyclical liturgical calendar. It's cyclical. When we look at the liturgical calendar, according to Dr. Robert Weber, who's the author of a wonderful book that kind of goes deep into the idea of the liturgical calendar and why it's even important, it's called Ancient Future Time. He says, you begin to notice three movements or orientations that rotate constantly through the rejoicing. And those three things are waiting, rejoicing, and manifesting. There's three things that we do as the people of God that we see in the liturgical calendar. We wait, we rejoice, and we manifest. It's a consistent cyclical theme. In Advent, we wait. In Christmas tide, we rejoice. In Epiphany tide, we manifest. In Lent, we wait. In Easter, we rejoice. In a Pentecost, we manifest. And it continues Every single year. Remember last week I mentioned our understanding of time in the West is linear. But my hope is we recapture the reality of our Eastern origins and that time is cyclical and seasonal. And this helps us orient ourselves around the story of Jesus as well. In the Advent season, we wait, we long, we yearn, we hope, and we reflect Those are the postures that we take in the Advent season. Don't rush to December 25th. Don't call this time Christmas time. It's not. It's not. It is Advent, and we wait, and we slow down, and we subvert the hurry and the busyness of society by slowing even more so in the Advent season as we move closer and closer to the arrival of Christ the King in Bethlehem. Fleming Rutledge says that Advent tells us about our own lives as Christians, here and now. Advent is where we live, work, play, laugh, struggle, and die. Advent is the time between, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, between darkness and dawn, between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. 
It is not the time of fulfillment. It is the time of waiting. Advent is a season of longing and waiting and yearning for the arrival of Christ the King, not just in Bethlehem, but also in the second coming. But there tends to be one Advent that I think gets lost in the mix. There's one arrival and one coming that gets lost in the mix. Of course, there's the coming of Christ to Bethlehem. That's a given. This is what theologians call the incarnation, God becoming flesh. Then there is obviously the coming of Christ at the end of history, or what the New Testament calls the day of the Lord. And we sit in the in-between space of the coming at Bethlehem and the coming at the end of history and time. Yet there is another very real coming of Christ for all of us. It is the coming of Christ into our lives. It is the coming of Christ by way of his spirit into our lives. And it is in that coming that we have the utmost joy. The angel said to shepherds in Luke chapter 2, I bring you good news that will cause or propagate great joy for all the people. John the Baptist leaps for joy in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. Joy, friends, as we lit the joy candle today, joy is extreme gladness, a deep sense of delight. However, it is primarily something that we choose intentionally. We choose joy. We can experience happiness externally, but we choose joy from a place internally. It isn't circumstantial, but substantial. Joy is not based upon circumstance. Rather, it is substantial. Joy is stable. Happiness is transient. Happiness has no real verb tense. Rather, we can specifically choose to enjoy. And in this season, my hope is that we choose joy. Charlie Dates says, you can have real joy in unlikely circumstances when the motivation for your joy is not your circumstances. Love that. You can have real joy, all of us can, even in the midst of our challenging circumstances when the motivation of our joy is not our circumstances, but something that's transcendent, something that is rooted. And in an age of, quote-unquote, whatever makes you happy, may we choose the steadfast, eternal joy provided by Christ Jesus and the life he came to invite us all into. It isn't just about whatever makes us happy because it's transient. It comes and goes. But joy is something that is stable and something that is steadfast. And may we choose joy. You ever met someone who's just going through a lot, but they're like, man, they got so much joy. It's like, how? Honestly, you're broke, you're beat down, you're struggling, but you are so joyful. And some people got it all, quote unquote, and they're miserable. It's fascinating. Some of those joy-filled people are people who have very little. Choose joy. It goes beyond our circumstances. For our Advent series, we felt compelled to spend some time examining and exploring the song of Mary in Luke chapter 1, known by many as the Magnificat. Mostly because of how little time it has gotten in front of many believers. I mentioned last week, only about 43% of people within the church had heard 
this passage taught on in the context of the church. So it doesn't get a lot of airtime in, in the realm of the church, especially in the Protestant world. But it's deeply profound, it's revolutionary, it's thoughtful, it's theological, and it's gospel proclaiming. And we are going to read the Magnificat together collectively this morning. I would actually encourage you in this season, if you are able, to memorize the Magnificat. It's a handful of verses. It's a challenge, but I would encourage you to memorize cognitively the Magnificat or Mary's song, Luke chapter 1. Let's read it together collectively as we continue in our time together this morning. It'll be up on the screen. We'll just read this as one body. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. To Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian from the early part of the 20th century in the middle of Nazi Germany, calls the Magnificat the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. We will get more into this next week in our teaching as we move deeper into Mary's song of the Magnificat, which means magnify in Latin. But Mary's name in Hebrew is Miriam. And it meant rebel or their rebellion. There is deep prophetic implications connected to her name and what she is prophesying in this song that bleeds the Old Testament psalms and cries for justice and peace of the Jewish prophets and people. So we're going to dive deeper into Mary's name and how that plays out in this prophetic passage of Scripture. This song was sung, as I mentioned last week, while Mary was in the middle of her pregnancy. Now, obviously, we just went through nine months of pregnancy. My wife did. I, I wasn't really a part of it. I was just present and said, I, how can I help you, darling? What can I do? Right? But you ever heard the saying, like, don't mess with a pregnant woman? You know? Like, don't upset a pregnant woman, okay? We tend to view Mary in this, like, soft, passive, seemingly insignificant role that just sits at the nativity scene. But Mary's aggressive. Mary's deep. Mary's thoughtful. And you don't want to mess with a pregnant Mary. And you can see and sense this anticipation and this tone of, 
not just excitement, but this sense of like, let's go get them, Yahweh, in the Magnificat. And so she's gone to spend some time with her elderly cousin Elizabeth, who is going to bear John the Baptist in the Judean hillside near Jerusalem, a few, uh, few dozen miles away from Mary's home in Nazareth. She walks about a thousand feet uphill from her home in Nazareth. I mean, this girl's got endurance. She's pregnant. She's going uphill. Her name means rebellion. Like, don't play with this 12-year-old, okay, this 13-year-old girl. She has this posture of willingness, servitude, worship, and a sense of revolution within her. This song has three elements that I mentioned last week. One of praise, promise, and prophecy. Praise, promise, and prophecy. And it's easy for us often in our own life to compartmentalize these three elements. But we see holistically, we see praise, we see promise, and we see prophecy in this passage. Today we're going to spend a couple of moments in Luke 1, verses 48b through 50. So let's go back to Luke 1, verse 48b through 50. It says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. I have a gift. Maybe some of you enjoy this, but I, I, I love to drive around super nice neighborhoods with cool homes, expensive homes, nice yards. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I, like the other day, I was out by myself driving past Hamilton Lakes, West Friendly. I'm going to turn on Kemp Road and drive around, see what's up for sale. Like, why not look at some mid-century, modern, amazing homes that I will never be able to afford? Why not? You know, you name the neighborhood. Irving Park, been through it. Fisher Park, been through it. Westerwood, love it. Sunset Hills, come on. And here's one you need to drive through that you probably never have. Northern Shores, Lake Jeanette. Amazing, cool little neighborhood. All right? I love it. I just love driving around these neighborhoods. I'm going to be honest with you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you do this, and that's okay, especially at Christmas. Okay? I enjoy this. And, you know, when you drive around certain neighborhoods, you know, you kind of get uh, subconscious about the car you're driving. You know? People look at you like, are you a thief? Like, are you coming to steal? Are you a pizza delivery guy? What are you doing in my neighborhood? Okay? But then... You know, you ever notice teenagers in those neighborhoods driving cars? And they're driving cars that you're like, how? you know you didn't buy that. Like, how are you 16 driving a G-Wagon? You know? You know, you're a sophomore driving a Land Rover. Come on. What's the deal? Right, this is not your mom's 95 Dodge Grand Caravan. You know? I, I saw somebody recently driving. The girl looks like she's like 15 years old. She's driving like this brand new Jeep Wrangler. Like, who got you this, girl? You know? It's like, you need to be driving an 87 Honda Accord. All right? I have this moment driving through these neighborhoods where I think, man, they sure are blessed. Man, you ever, you ever thought about that before? Like, driving, man, they are blessed. Blessing from our American vantage point, more often than not, is connected and tied to a person's socioeconomic status and level of financial prosperity. 
that to be blessed means you are fiscally secure, able to buy nice things, able to travel to desirable destinations, go to well-known academic institutions, achieve a level of significance in the climb of the corporate ladder, have a spouse who looks like Brad or Angelina, and have kids overachieving in every extracurricular activity that is known to mankind. In America, these are the people that we, quote-unquote, say are blessed. This is our understanding of the blessed life. Blessing has a look to it. Blessing has an aesthetic. But not so for Mary. Mary did not come from money. Mary was not driving a Tesla around Nazareth. She didn't come from royalty. Mary wasn't a child prodigy. Mary was a broke Jewish farm girl from a small town living in the shadows of the oppressive Roman Empire and was pregnant out of wedlock. A predicament that could have legally gotten her killed. And if not that, been a life of social suicide. Yet, Mary flips the secular notion of the blessed life on its head. I want you to hear this. For her, the blessed life wasn't about status or possessions, but about service and devotion. It was not an aesthetic, but a posture that she carried. That's good preaching. I'll be honest. That's good. That's good. It wasn't about status or possessions, but about service and devotion. For for a lot of us, a lot of us are in pursuit of status and possessions. That they are going to help us achieve the blessed life. Not so with Mary. It's marked by service and devotion. We cannot achieve the blessed life through the model laid out before us in the West. We can't. We can achieve the successful life, but not the blessed life. To achieve the blessed life, we must adopt the model laid before us by this very woman. A model and archetype that her son Jesus builds off of in Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Go and look at the Beatitudes and see how many of them connect to the life of Mary. Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, saw a model laid before him, I believe, in his mother's life. And he builds off of that in his kingdom manifesto. Jesus lays out a a more full, clear prototype of what the blessed life looks like in the kingdom in Matthew chapter 5. And I believe that he had his mother's life in mind when he was teaching in Galilee. Mary flips this blessed life on its head, and so does Jesus. She subverts the blessed life. It wasn't about royalty or power or status. In a society that was certainly hierarchical, she flips it upside down. Blessing should be deeply connected, friends and family, to our obedience and faithfulness to Jesus, his cause, and his kingdom. That life will produce a blessed life. If you are committed in obedience and faithfulness to Jesus of Nazareth, to the ways of his kingdom, to the spirit, 
you will, I promise you, experience the blessed life. You'll be able to be in different circumstances throughout life and be able to say, I am blessed. I'm blessed. You know, you know at funerals, nobody talks about possessions. They don't talk about status. They talk about character. They talk about your posture. They talk about who you were intrinsically, who you became, not what you had. You can experience the blessed life if you are connected to the vine that is Jesus of Nazareth and walk in obedience and faithfulness to him. She goes on to say in verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. The word for is a conjunction. So it's connecting the fact that she says that people are going to call me blessed for generations because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. The mighty one, which is mega in Greek. I love that. Notice it doesn't say a mighty one. It says the mighty one. Not a mighty one, not a powerful one. There's a lot of mighty ones. She says the mega, the mighty one. That assumes a personal and specific identity of the one in which she is speaking of. It's kind of like saying the dog versus a dog. She calls him holy specifically. Yahweh is distinct. He is holy. He is other. He is set apart in essence and in character. And she's saying that I'm blessed because of the mighty one and what he has done for me. He has done great things for her. That is an indicative. That is a statement of the past. He has done great things. Now he's going to. He has. He's already done great things. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And Mary's like, he's done amazing things for me. He's done great things for me. She's already proclaiming and praise that the mighty one has already done wonderful things for her. He has done great things. Yes, for the world, but specifically, she says, for me. He has done great things for me. And as a result of this blessing that she experiences, she is called blessed for all generations. She counted it a privilege to be a servant. You ever seen those shirts that say, too blessed to be stressed? I'm pretty sure Mary was stressed, but she was blessed. You know what I'm talking about? She was blessed. Look, you can be stressed and still be blessed. Mary was. She was pregnant, for heaven's sake. And Joseph is like, I don't know what we're about to do. Like, what is going on? Like, the angel just showed up. What angel just showed up? This is crazy. You know? She was blessed to be a blessing. She was fortunate to be a vessel and privileged to be a servant. When was the last time you counted a privilege to serve someone? When was the last time you counted as blessing to bless someone? In word, in deed, in finances, in time. When was the last time you said, I am actually thrilled that I get to do this for you? Blessed to be a blessing. We take for granted that Mary plays a key role in the entire redemption story of the cosmos. And she participates simply out of being in service and worship to Yahweh. Her part, Mary's part, is vital and necessary in making the incarnation happen. For God to become flesh, it had to be done through childbirth. 
It had to. It had to be done through childbirth, which required a set-apart and obedient woman. Again, I mentioned briefly last week, our Protestant tradition has denigrated Mary. The Catholic Church has venerated her. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. (laughs) There's extremes on either side. But I have to say, we need honestly, we need to look at our Catholic brothers and sisters and look at how they have venerated this woman who is faithful and obedient to Yahweh and played a key role in the redemption story of the cosmos. The incarnation of God could not happen without Mary. Some of you are like, I don't know if I believe that. We can talk after. It's totally okay. What Mary does is that she counters what Eve did in the garden. Check this. St. Irenaeus, first two centuries of the church. Eve was seduced to disobey God. But Mary was persuaded to obey God so that the Virgin Mary might become the advocate of the Virgin Eve. As the human race was uh, subjected to death through a virgin, so it was saved by or through a virgin. And thus the disobedience of the virgin was precisely balanced by the obedience of another. Mary is countering what Eve couldn't do in the garden. We see this new Eve character come on the scene. Keep in mind that Eve's name meant the mother of all life. That's what Eve's name meant, the mother of all life. But Mary was the mother of life, the Logos. Profound. Eve was the mother of all life, but Mary was the mother of the Logos, the the creator of all life, the essence of life was in her womb as an embryo. And her name, as I mentioned, means rebellion. And so she is subversively prophesying and walking into the revolution and rebellion on the sin and injustice of Adam and Eve, led by her soon-to-be son, Jesus, and the launching of his kingdom. Wow. Mary serves as the new Eve. When her name means their rebellion, it's as though she's already connected to Jesus. Jesus is going to lead this rebellion against sin, death, and the grave, and I'm right there with him. We together. I will be there at the cross. I want to look at a couple aspects as we kind of wrap up today, aspects of blessing in correlation to the life of Mary. Especially in the midst of this Advent season. The first thing that I want you all to notice, it is, it is a blessing to be chosen to serve God. Very simple. This isn't deep. It is a blessing to be chosen to serve God. Mary was chosen by God. And you and I have been chosen as the people of God to serve him, and it's a blessing. It's not a burden. If serving Jesus is a burden, you're not experiencing true Jesus. It's a blessing. We actually, as human beings, we desire to serve someone. Did you know that? Like, we desire to make a difference. We desire to be impactful. It is a miserable and less than fulfilling life to only serve yourself. People who are self-serving are miserable. Some of you are going to be around some of them during the holidays. You're like, you're miserable. Why are you so selfish? But people who give of themselves have a deep sense of that joy we talked about, of blessing. 
We desire, I think, to be chosen for a team. Goes back to dodgeball in elementary school. Choose me, pick me. Just please not last. Whatever we do, like not last. We want to be chosen to be on the team. And guess what, dear friends? Jesus looks at you by his spirit and says, I choose you. 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 Choose you. Choose you. Selah, I choose you, baby girl. I choose you. Serve me. It's a blessing. Why is it a blessing? Because we are, we are serving him out of his service for us. We love him because he first loved us. We are blessing because he's blessed us. Derwin Gray says, our blessings are not designed to give us purpose, but rather our purpose is found in the one that blessed us. Your blessings in your life don't, don't give you purpose, but rather your purpose is found in the one that has blessed us. Mary got this. She understood this. Her purpose wasn't to birth Jesus. Did you know that? Her purpose was not to birth the Son of God. Her purpose was to serve Yahweh. It was to serve the creator of the world. Your purpose isn't to do the thing. Your purpose is to serve Yahweh, to give him glory, to worship him with all of your life. Because once you do the thing, then it's like, I'm done. No, 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 you're not done serving. (laughs) Keep it up. All right? Her purpose was not to birth Jesus. It was to serve Yahweh. Without that service, there would have been no birth of Jesus through Mary without serving Yahweh. The second is it is a blessing to have Christ in us. It is a blessing to have Christ in us. God, in this moment, is forming Christ in Mary, literally, physically. And by the Spirit, check this out, God is forming Christ in you. Right now, those of us who have submitted ourselves to Jesus, God is forming Christ in you. It might start out as an embryo, and it matures, and it grows, until you say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He is forming Christ in you, and it is a blessing. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, 19, my dear brothers and sisters, or my dear children, excuse me, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The third aspect of blessing in the life of Mary, it is a a blessing to deliver Christ into the world. It is a blessing for us as the people of God to deliver the deliverer into the world. To bring forth the healer, to testify to his peace, to testify to his goodness, to live in a way that imitates him as citizens of another world, as a reflector of what shalom looks like. To be a glimpse of the future in our present moment. He brings joy, peace, and life. And we are, friends, to be a blessing. Romans chapter 10 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Mary was blessed and returned the favor of blessing. That's the very nature of blessing. That's how true blessing works. Blessing is generative. It perpetuates itself. Blessing produces blessing. Blessing bears seeds of fruit. And those seeds contain blessing. Israel was called in the Old Testament by Yahweh to be a blessing to the nations. That was their cosmological role. You will be a blessing to the nations. Adam and Eve were meant to be a blessing to the world, to be fruitful and to multiply, to cultivate the earth. 
We are called make disciples of all nations. We are to be a blessing to this dark world. And we should consider it a blessing to deliver Christ into the world. Mary was blessed and shows all of us in this Advent season a model, a living model for the blessed life. One that mirrors Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. The final verse in this little section is verse 50. I'm going to go ahead and get the band to come up. We're going to sing together and worship. Verse 50 says that his mercy extends to those who fear him. You know, the word mercy appears five different times in Luke chapter 1. Five times. It appears six times in all of Luke. Five in Luke chapter 1. And it means compassion or goodwill towards those who are in trouble. But what I love about this verse is that it shows us that mercy reaches out. The very nature of mercy is one of extension. Mercy extends itself. We can't display mercy without extending a hand. We can't can't experience the blessing of compassion without extending the hand. And the very story of God becoming human is mercy extended. It is mercy reaching out. I think about that old Phillips, Craig, and Dean song, Mercy Came Running. Mercy came running. Okay, anyway. Mercy extending itself. But mercy isn't blind. God doesn't extend mercy blindly. He extends his mercy to those who fear him. That may sound exclusive, but it's not. What he's saying is that the only people who will recognize and encounter the mercy of God will be those who fear him, who revere, who worship him. This idea of fear is not to be afraid. That's an adjective. To fear is actually a verb, and it means to revere, to worship, and in in such a way it's like, whoa, awe and wonder. Wow. Like standing on the edge of a cliff, fear. This is wild and insane and could kill me, but this is insanely beautiful. Think about the most beautiful place you've ever been. Grand Canyon. It's a massive ocean. Top of a building. This is insane. And I believe Mary has the posture of looking at Yahweh and saying, you are insanely wonderful. Thank you that you've extended your mercy and compassion to us. Advent, friends, is a season of recognizing our need for mercy. Recognizing our need for compassion and choosing joy and knowing that it has been extended to us. We're going to worship together in song. I want you to be pressing into the mercy of God and the blessing that he has extended to all of you. The seed of blessing so that you might be a blessing to others in this Advent season.